You are listening to the Visualizing War podcast. In each episode, we talk about representations of war in art, text, film, and music. With new guests each time, we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places, and we discuss the impact which war stories have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Alice Koenig and I co-direct the Visualising War project at the University of St Andrews. My guest today is Anthony Borden, founder and executive director of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting. Tony has won awards and recognition both for his own journalism and for some of the Institute's initiatives, and he comments regularly on how conflict is reported in the media. I'm going to be talking to him about the work of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, what their mission is, what kinds of projects they run, and I'll also be asking him a bit about trends in the ways that conflict gets reported around the world, what kinds of stories different media outlets tend to focus on, and what impact they can have on our wider habits of visualising war and approaching and understanding conflict. So Tony, it's fantastic to have you on the podcast. Hello and welcome. Thanks for having me. I only wish I was up there in Sanders with you. Absolutely. Wouldn't that be nice? So do you think you could start off just by giving our listeners a quick overview of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting? What's its mission? What does it aim to do? Sure. Thank you. The Institute for War and Peace Reporting is an international not-for-profit. It's registered as a charity in the UK. Our goal is, uh, as we say, uh, giving voice and driving change, strengthening local journalism and civic activists and rights activists in areas of conflict and transition and change, helping them be able to speak strongly and well and professionally to serve as a platform for their communities and to bring their solutions and their ideas to their own challenges. So it's not about going in as an external and reporting, it's about empowering local people to report, but also, as you say, drive change through that. You touch on immediately an important point, which is that the way conflict is understood or dictatorship or challenge transitions in any of these difficult countries, the way it's understood internationally has a strong bearing on their lives and their futures. So clearly the impact of what they turn up, how they tell their own stories and how that relates to the international media has a very strong impact back in their own societies as Western responses, international responses are often determining and overdetermining. Yes, that's something that's come up in another episode that we had earlier in the series. A former soldier was actually talking about how that external, sometimes quite Western international narrative impacts, overrides sometimes, affects the local narratives on the ground, sometimes conflicts with them as well. But it's interesting to hear that that happens in the realm of media and reporting too. So can you tell us a little bit about who's involved in the Institute for War and Peace reporting? How many people do you have on the ground? Where do you work? And just give us a flavour of um, what kinds of things you do. IWPR has been around for a little while. We got started, actually, the origins were around the first Gulf War, but our our real origins around the Yugoslav crisis, the disintegration of the federal Yugoslavia and the decade of that experience and more. And now we work in around uh, almost three dozen countries. We're very fortunate to have a number of established international journalists, experts and media entrepreneurs on the boards and human rights activists and others. Um, We're generously supported by foundations, but also by governments. People don't actually realize necessarily that Western governments fund aid, but they also fund in the range of democracy and human rights 
programming, and that's our kind of field and the areas where we've been supported. Our staff and teams are a mix of uh, technical staff, journalists and former journalists, and also people who are from the international uh, NGO sector. We work on the ground with journalists, with civic groups. We partner with a lot of local groups, whether, whether it's local media or it's a local group of network of women's activists or otherwise. So we have about 125 people working with PR as a team, but really our network are many more than that in terms of individuals. We're not a news agency. We're not building a network of reporters. We're supporting local individuals, local journalists within their own institutions and their own media. Of course, we love to highlight their work when we can, but we're not replacing Reuters. That's not our goal. Okay, that's an important clarification. So you offer training and some more practical support to help sow the seeds of different kinds of journalism in the countries where you work? I learned my journalism in New York City from a couple of editors who were were as tough as nails and beat my head into the ground until I figured out how to write a lead sentence. And mentoring is really the essential, I would say, of our work. We do formal training. Uh, We're actually, especially with COVID, building more online resources and expanding our online training academy and sharing resources. But really all of this, and and it's very, very important, but the best way that journalists ever learn is by working with other journalists. And it's a two-way street and they share and they work together and they produce a story and then they produce another story. So to us, the best learning part of the experience is by working to produce material together. But we've been doing this for some time. And so the the complexity of what we've done has really quite expanded from basic training to if you want to build independent media, they also need to be well-managed and well-funded and well-structured. So we have programs that work and look at the institutional structure of independent media and how are they funding. One of the most creative programs we ever did had a, a story I won't fully go into, but was to create a women's advertising agency in Iraq under the idea that if women drove the advertising flow, the content would also follow. So there's a whole range of highly complex uh, and and really amusing and intriguing and fascinating projects we've been involved with. Obviously with social media, more and more work with production and quality production within the social media realm. It is a critical part of journalism because it's the platform for journalism these days, no matter what is your underlying field, whether it's broadcast or otherwise, but also citizen journalism. We'll get into that too. And also, as I said, working with civic groups because in distress groups, civil society groups, which means rights activists, are the flip side of journalists. And frankly, in in many societies, they're often wearing the same hats. Journalists can benefit working with rights groups to have a real sense of relevance and, and subject matter. And of course, NGOs can benefit by having the platform to have their information and, and ideas more widely disseminated. So that's just a, a skating overview of some of the different programs we do. And you've touched on lots of really interesting and important things there, which I would like to come back to at some point citizen journalism, social media, and so on. I'm interested that you mentioned that overlap, that partnership between civic or rights activists and journalists. Obviously, you work in the areas of human rights and democracy, but I think I want to sort of pin down why you specialise specifically in conflict. You know, journalism could do with support and mentoring all around the world in many different places, what drove you to think that that it's in areas of conflict, at the front lines of conflict, that you particularly want to offer this support? 
Well, I will tell you that our name is famously cumbersome, and you can tell sometimes how long somebody's been with the organization because they don't pronounce it so easily in the early stages. And in some societies, it's not taken very well because, especially in many African countries, we've worked, uh, governments will react and say, well, we're not having a war, so we just don't want you here. We've had enough of that. So we take our name with a grain of salt. It really has a lot to do with our origins because of the Balkans and also the Gulf conflict before that. But I would say, it also serves as a lodestar for us because it reminds us that we really should make best efforts where we can to be engaged where things are worse. And I'll admit that there are places where we're not working. So we have not worked in Yemen. We've We've tried a bit. We've had some startup projects, but it's an exceptionally difficult country to work in. So it reminds us, I, I can tell you that when 9-11 happened, we knew we had to work in Afghanistan and our name was one of the reasons. And the same when Iraq opened up, it serves its purpose. But war is also more broadly defined and peace is also in our name. And peace reporting is itself a specific concept. And I think also conflict is involved in non-permissive society. A dictatorship is a conflict of a kind. And we could also get on to really that where we are now, which is a new era where the conflict is global in the sense of a sort of global strategic conflict between the, the West and bound to say Russia, but particularly China. So I think it's an important name for us. It's also our history, but I think the term also is, is a bit flexible. But it is true that in conflict itself, I think things are particularly challenging. And I think we also are very proud when we're able to help local journalists in those most exceptionally challenging periods. Yeah, so you're right, absolutely, that conflict blurs into all sorts of other social issues and social challenges. I might come back to that phrase you used earlier, that peace reporting is a very specific thing in itself. We might we might talk about that if we have time. I wonder, though, if I can take you back to the origins of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, which you founded about 20 years ago. You've mentioned that it came out partly out of your experience, actually, of reporting in the Balkans and the Yugoslav conflict and also the Gulf conflict. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about how it started and how those specific conflicts got you going. Yes. Nice to have lost a decade, and I would, uh, would thank you for that. But actually, it's 30 years, sadly, for me anyway. But exceptionally fascinating times. Really, the, the origins of the project were as a street anti-war action in London at the time around the first Gulf War, not so much uh, for or against uh, uh, Saddam Hussein as it was, but really to try to promote uh, Iraqi voices at a difficult time. And that was really the origins of it. And that's the thing that that was the secret sauce in a very short period because it was a short war and a short action. But that's what we took away from it. And it really that summer, we were trying to figure out what we might do, thinking we'd create an institute and be a global war monitor, which actually some have done and wasn't a bad idea, but, but the Yugoslav conflict started around that time. And we had networks within civic groups in Yugoslavia through our networking and through our friends. And it was just very natural that we again started up a newsletter on the emerging conflict in the Balkans, as we had previously done. Um, and really, the, the Yugoslav conflict was a tremendously engaging, uh, tragic, and also, in a way, inspirational place to work because the problem was so acute, because specifically, the conflict was in many ways driven through and by the media explicitly, especially by the uh, Yugoslav leadership and, and Milosevic himself. It's, it's so curious because you'd have to almost explain it to our children now, but broadcast media remains important, but it was exceptionally important then. If you controlled state broadcaster, you really controlled um, the public discourse. And it was, it was through explicit 
hate speech, really, that Yugoslavia was torn apart. And many people would always ask, how could they do this to each other? and neighbor upon neighbor, as it were. And the discourse, our role, we had a very specific role at that time. The conflict, especially in the early stages, when the West was very hesitant to engage, was to say that they have always killed themselves, they're savages, and really there's nothing we can do. And so our project turned out to be in touch with the, the most exceptional network of people who took a completely alternate view, were some of the bravest and most forthright journalists you could possibly imagine and activists. And through what they reported and wrote about, but also through their own example, gave exactly the opposite perspective. And I think that that was really what the debate in Yugoslavia was about and throughout the Balkans at that time. Is it ancient ethnic animosities is the phrase that it was used, or this is a manufactured conflict by criminals. And I think at the end of the day, it all wound up in court and we, we therefore got there in the end after terrible tragedy, if not genocide. So it was a very long conflict. We were heart and soul poured into it. And we were really a part of that Yugoslav response brigade from Croatia to Bosnia to Kosovo and the conflict of Macedonia. We, we hung with it for a very long time. And we had slowly expanded our work to the Caucasus and to Central Asia over that time. And we really didn't have a great vision, I would say, about where to go from there. But two important things happened. One, that we felt the Yugoslav show, if I can use that phrase, was moving on. So we localized our team and all the Balkan staff went off to create an independent Balkan reporting network, which we're really proud to say has been hugely successful, continues to say, and fantastic for them. We just didn't feel it was right. And as I said, it wasn't our point to replace a local institution. It's to help create a local institution. So we lost, in a way, our Balkan identity, but we birthed a Balkan institution, which was the bigger gain in the long term, although we still do some work separately in the Balkans to this day. And then the other enormous thing that happened was, of course, 9-11. And I'm from New York, so it was exceptionally upsetting. And my father worked in that building, but wasn't there, thankfully, at that time. And also our Central Asia team had been telling me over that summer that we really should think about working in Afghanistan. And I said, guys, there's no way we can work in Afghanistan. But the next morning when we all reassembled in the office, we said, guess what? We'll be working in Afghanistan. And I think more broadly, we realized that if we felt the issue of the importance of local voices to contribute to a world of conflict, it was time to really raise our game and our ambition and try to work wherever we could. So that was the moment we moved from being a local group to really being an international organization. That's a really interesting history there. And again, you've brought up so many important things. So the feedback loop, I suppose, between media narrative and conflict, you mentioned that media narratives in some ways were driving the conflict. And that's something that our Visualising War project is really interested in. But not just the media narratives that were coming out of Yugoslavia, but also sort of national media narratives from other countries using particular phrases, characterizing the conflict in certain ways that allowed them to stay out of it or eventually perhaps triggered engagement. But then your work was very much actually about empowering the voices, strengthening the voices of underlying communities, um, alternate viewpoints. And I suppose I was wondering how you went about finding those other people, those underlying voices, those non-state narratives. And, you know, it's wonderful to hear that you then empowered them so much that there's this independent Balkan reporting network now that's one of your legacies. But how did you find them? Yes. Well, especially at that time, we were very small and 
I mean, if we weren't in the office, we didn't exist. You know, we were just a couple of young kids, really. So we worked through personal networks. That's the way you functioned. And I, I think the Balkans was filled with networks, very open networks and, and, and very wonderful networks. And, and many people became great friends. I mean, wherever I traveled, I never stayed in a hotel. I stayed on a couch. I couch surfed. First of all, I couldn't afford it. But, but we were very close at that time. We worked very closely. We lived and breathed the conflict and the relationships. It wasn't so professionalized, I would have to say. It was, it was, a, it was a mission. It was a mission objective. It was, a, it was, it was what we did. It's who we were. So um, we made friends in Belgrade. We made friends in, in uh, Sarajevo and throughout. And there were a number of networks. And over the time, the peace networks and the media networks were, were quite developed in the human rights networks and became quite evolved. Now we're much more professionalized, I would say, and, and obviously working in many more countries and you just can't have quite that same personalized approach. But it's also more appropriate. You will often do things in a public and competed way. So we're working on projects many times. We'll say we have a fund to support. I would roll the tape very much forward and you're working in Africa to try to train journalists to report accurately on COVID. And you will have a public call for proposals to write stories and you will base it on quality and, and so forth. So you can work that way too. And probably that's possibly a more appropriate way. But during conflicts, it's especially acute and you depend on, on close networks very often. So it depends on the stage that you're at. Presumably during conflicts like the Yugoslav conflict, then heading into Afghanistan as well. One of the things that you must be aware of is working with people who might be producing an anti-government narrative or an alternative viewpoint, at least. That's a risky business. So I wonder if you could say a bit more about how you don't just empower them to raise their voice, but I suppose arm them to protect themselves. Well, you again, your questions are, are complex and wonderful. I happen to think that the core of international journalism is a great tool, if not a foundational tool within conflict areas, because its principles are actually resolution principles, which is facts, balance, fairness, and decency of tone. Now, it sounds simple to list that those are very difficult things to achieve when the guy you're supposed to interview wants to kill you. It's not, it's not so easy or when you can't get there or when you don't believe it. So if you're within the conflict, it is very hard to follow those principles. But I will always believe, and we didn't know this when we started, it just turns out that I think these principles, I understand them as a journalist, but I didn't know as somebody involved in the conflict field that they're critical and indeed foundational within conflict. So to me, if you want to talk, for example, about peace reporting, there's a discussion about peace reporting, which is to report on the peace, which is to report on good news, not bad news, which is to report in ways that bridge communities. There's lots of strategies you can use, and all of them are fantastic. But my primary toolbox of peace reporting is just basic journalism. If you just start with that, I also know from my work as a journalist, but really observing and knowing and in answering to your question of how do you protect them, your best protection is accuracy and fairness as a journalist in belief that you have a public role, not a partisan role. That, of course, is something we can talk about because that's a very difficult concept now, but that's the classical role. But however, journalism, our role is taking this very seriously. We have lost a number of colleagues, by the way, over the years. That's been very painful for us, and we keep that with us all the time. 
but no story is worth the byline. That's just a that's just a mantra, and it's just a rule. There's never a time when it's worth reporting something that will get you killed. We not infrequently run stories without bylines or with pseudonyms, which isn't preferred. It's not the best way to work, but sometimes you have to, and so forth. So it it's not easy, especially because you're working with people who. Who don't have the passport. So they're in that country. They have to stay in the country. They can't get on the plane and fly out. And that's really why it's particularly challenging and difficult for them. Yes, but you're arming them with these principles. And it's really interesting to hear you talking about those principles as a tool for change. So it's not simply reporting on war or on peace, but reporting in a way that brings about some kind of resolution in conflict, reporting as an active intervention, not simply a story about. And I, that's really fascinating to hear you talk about that and talking about the integrity of journalism as something that protects you, that's bigger than the story. I'm really enjoying the narrative that's coming out here where the Institute for War and Peace Reporting started with a sense that in the Yugoslav conflict, that the state media was controlling the conflict by controlling the narrative. What the IWPR is trying to do is engineer reporting or sort of generate reporting journalism that doesn't perpetuate conflict, that doesn't drive conflict, but that actually helps resolve conflict. It's really interesting to hear that narrative playing out. And I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit more now about how when you scaled up or went international in Afghanistan, how things changed, what kind of work you got up to in Afghanistan and beyond. Yes. Well, as I said, 9-11 was a change moment for us. I think we all felt that, quote the prime minister, the world is in flux and everything is up in play. And I, I think we really felt that if we believed in our work, we'd have to extend it challengingly. We were aware that there would be different dynamics. Every conflict is the same and different. There are similarities and there are profound differences. You can't go anywhere and say, oh, I've done this before. I can do it here because you can't. On the other hand, Drip by drip, you carry forward lessons that sort of link. And I think that this fundamental idea that the human soul is actually more good than bad, and that conflict is more engendered and driven than inherent, and that officials and governments exploit information to drive it, to me, that holds together. I find that a classic <laughs> across the piece. The societies are very different, and it's not easy to say, oh, yes, kumbaya, peace and harmony. Any society can be patched back together or should even be back together. It's not in a way for us to decide that anyway. But I do think that we can always look at the forces that are driving conflict and try to reduce them. So Afghanistan has been an exceptionally long engagement, and we have done, I suppose, everything there from what I call my Journalism 101, which is really my bread and butter, what I love about the organization, which is basic skills training and the principles of journalism. And I still, to this day, get quite moved, actually. Um, I can rock up to a journalism training seminar hosted by one of our teams almost anywhere, and I will just tell them I'm having a flashback because you can be a training seminar in Latin America or in Asia or in Africa or in the Balkans. And when you get down to the journalistic or the professional principles and the people around the table and the kind of conversation you have, the similarity of it, I find very exciting, very moving, and really inspirational for our work. But in Afghanistan, we started to work more with civil society groups directly. 
I think one of the challenges for a group like us is, so you're producing journalism, but what difference does it make? You know, we don't have forever here, guys. What are you doing? So if you work, for example, with women's groups, this will help the journalists have good stories to write because the groups will help direct kind of some of their ideas and some of their research. But also when a report is produced, uh, the, the, the civil society groups will make some noise around it. They will bring it to the local community. And we have many examples of issues that will be raised and addressed because a story has been written and it's been promoted and advocated within the local community. And really that's, that's sort of the grassroots engagement. There is, especially in this sort of American ideal that journalism shouldn't be active. I think also it's something very classical for local media to have a campaigning side. I mean, every local press has campaigned to clean up the local dump or to improve the local schools or to help a family that has come in. And I think it's normal for media to actually care. And if you care, then you want to engage. And I don't think it's a crushing abdication of our fundamental principles of being balanced and objective. I think it's just being community associated. But we also did actually in Afghanistan, we've been there so long and we have had an exceptionally good team. So we've done almost everything. We have done a very exciting project for some years called Open Minds, in which we use the tools of journalism to work with students to teach them about civic debate and discourse to engage publicly in issues. It wasn't to teach everybody to be a journalist, but to prove, as we said, that these tools are important for thinking about solutions and for ways to engage in public discourse positively and constructively. Uh, that, of course, became a, a very important project because we also had a parallel project in Pakistan. And arising from that project, we worked in the Swat Valley with a wonderful gentleman who was running a school and he had a daughter and his daughter's name was Malala. And so it turns out that Malala's first training platform was actually our Open Minds project. It was from there that her natural, amazing abilities shone through. She became uh, a trainee and then a trainer. And then she started a blog for the BBC and then she took her own pathway. But it just shows you that surprising and amazing things happen that you don't expect. Surprising and amazing things, but founded on such an amazing concept and an amazing organization. I'm so glad you brought Malala up because I was hoping you would. So I think one of the things that I'm really enjoying here is this sense of momentum and ripples the interventions on the ground, one-to-one -one individual training, but rippling out into sort of grassroots momentum and wider effect. And again, you're bringing us back to the fact that the work around war and peace reporting overlap all sorts of other areas of social need and social challenge. So human rights more generally, public debate, public discourse, and so on. I think another thing that I've really enjoyed hearing you unpick there is this complex relationship between journalistic objectivity, but the sense that journalism can care and therefore can be campaigning and active. And I suppose it's because you always come back to your principles of, as you put it, I think, fact, balance, fairness and decency. And if you're combining all of that, then you actually have a platform to care and campaign. Is that right? Yes, I would think so. I'm from New York. I'm an old rocker. So David Byrne from The Talking Heads has a great song and he sings, facts are never what they seem to be. Facts all come with a point of view. Facts don't do what I want them to. And I think that's sort of precisely it. The challenge of journalism is that it's difficult. Facts are hard to mint. Are you sure? Did he turn left or did he turn right? Can you fact check? Are you sure that was said? What, what are your sources? 
and the humility to know that you don't know what it means, that you just know the facts, but you can't interpret it because your job is to report it. And I think it's become a more difficult environment and a very confusing environment these days for a lot of reasons that we could touch on. And so the whole question of our role is, is also in a way in flux. So the whole world has changed, the whole landscape has changed, etc. And if you ask them, I can understand, you know, why Christian Alampour would do it because Bosnia was at risk and Clinton was worrying about it. And she confronted the president and said, do something. But nowadays, nobody going to do anything. And we know that because the West is in a mode of isolationism and the conflicts are too far away and too complicated and the societies are not interested and China is too powerful. And there's a million other reasons. And I find it really moving because a war correspondent will tell you, well, that's just my job to tell the story. And it's not my job to tell you what the impact of my reporting is going to do. I'm just doing the reporting. So I think that humility is something I find very moving within journalism because it really just takes the facts and the story is the hardest part. And that's enough for me or for journalism. And if they can do that, then it's done an awful lot. Yeah. And then it's for others to take up and for the impact to flow out from there. Tony, you mentioned a couple of times the changes over time in war reporting. So at one point you you said just a little while ago that journalistic principles don't change. So when you're in a training session, in a sense, it doesn't matter where in the world you are or in what space or time, you're still going to be going through the same journalistic tools. But at the same time, you've mentioned that the role of the journalist perceptions about journalism, the context for war reporting is radically changing and has changed a lot in the 30 years since you founded the Institute. Could you talk a bit more about that? Sure. Well, I have to say this is an an amazing time of flux. We're really trying to challenge ourselves to think about what we're doing and what our relevance is and what our relevance is, is moving forward. But I guess the fundamental change is that when I was starting out media professional in New York, And then it was a logic in a way behind my getting involved in this project. We felt there were gatekeepers to the international media, and we wanted to extend and democratize the voices who could pass through that gate and reach the people so that broader understanding from more diverse voices can be heard. It could be more understood. And particularly that the perspectives would be shared. Even still today, if that whole debate about Afghanistan that was just had, will we withdraw or not withdraw? And I participated in a dozen webinars hosted by Washington think tanks about whether Biden will withdraw, will extend, will, will delay, what it'll do, except for one, which was a European group which hosted it, but not a single one had an Afghan on it. And it was all about what does Afghanistan mean for us, i.e. the United States of America? That's not necessarily a bad thing if you're deciding, or unfair thing, if you're deciding what to do with your own troops and money. But Afghanistan really had very little to do with that discussion. That, that, that's the fundamental issue. We wanted to open up the pearly gates of the, these treasured gates. And I can say back in the day, you know, the high point of your life would be if the New York Times published an op-ed. If you could get an op-ed into the pages of the New York Times, you could die. You, you'd achieved, you, you, that was nirvana for you. Well, now it's all changed. Not only has the New York Times even changed the word op-ed because the whole structure of the paper is different, but more specifically, before there was limited access to broadcast and the reporting. Internationals were the reporters and the broadcasts were controlled. Now everybody's a reporter everybody's a broadcaster. So I'm having a sharp debate with one of my colleagues because he says that journalism is no longer the first draft of history. It's the second draft. 
We're the fact checkers of the first draft because citizen journalism and the iPhone is the first draft. We're having a sharp debate on that. I think maybe journalism is the first and a half draft because you can argue that very strongly. But the reality is that the meaning of bearing witness has shifted because the iPhone is there on the spot. What journalism has to do is, I think, still valid in its best if it's there, but it's often not there. And so often there is unmediated visuals and information. We don't know what it means, but we get it. So it is produced. It could be searing truth from the ground. It could be flat out fabricated lies from a deep fake shop in Macedonia or, or Siberia. You don't know, but it gets out there fast. So the whole world of information now has really been transformed by this you know, radical democratization, if I can say, so that anybody with a phone now is both a journalist and a broadcaster. That has made, as another colleague of mine put it very well, the fog of war has just got thicker, a lot thicker, because there's more information. Now, the good side of that is that there's more information about conflict in real time than I think there ever was before from more sources. It used to be, well, if you go to the Crimea War, you know, days would pass. And if you read, you know, wonderful Evelyn War, you know, you had several days between the massacre and the article appearing in the British press. Now it's immediate. There's more sources, there's local voices, there's NGOs, there's international press, there's regional press, there's these sort of new non-Western international press, the Al Jazeera. So there's a whole avalanche, snowstorm, blizzard of information. So that's the upside and you can find things there. And I think if you wish to, you can know a lot. The downside of course, is that disinformation is cheaper, quicker, more powerful, and in many ways more dangerous than ever. And I think more people are doing it. So are we winning the, the battle for truth? I'm not really sure. In fact, I don't think we necessarily are because I think we need to engage in it more seriously. There's an upside and there's a very serious downside to this change. I guess the fundamental meaning of the change is where before you might have said, well, what is the visualization of conflict of the Balkan conflict as was? And I can say there was a sharp discussion and debate about these two concepts in Western policy circles. Now there are multiple visions and they're not resolvable. So we're not even trying to get one visualization of what we've just got. This group has their view and this group has their view and the twain do not meet. And I think you don't need one, you have multiple and they continue to self-reinforce because they don't necessarily meet or clash. And the internet is the splinter net and has in fact divided us as much as it's joined us. So I think that creates whole new risks where you have multiple visualizations of we're not one. You're not trying to come up with what is the view. You've got competing views and they never meet up. And I think that creates just a whole new challenge for groups like us and for all of us. A challenge particularly for international journalists. And I think it's interesting that you sketched out two sort of parallel, perhaps interconnected trends there. So there's sort of the digital revolution, the splinternet, as you say, the you know mass amounts of information, some of which is deeply unreliable on the one hand, but also this sort of changing international attitude, changing international perspective about just how much some of the former big powers and the current big powers are interested, what their positionality on conflict is. So I think it's quite interesting that those two changes have been happening slightly in parallel. 
Tony, can you tell us a bit more about how you as an organisation are addressing these big challenges where truth is even harder to come by um, and and the challenge of somehow cutting through the noise and the mosaic of visualisations is harder and harder? Sure. Well, I think it's important to underline that all of this is happening at the same time as the international press itself going through a massive crisis of change. The digital revolution is gutting the financial model and the tech giants have hollowed out media finance by swiping all the advertising. So there's no financing to deploy as there was a question of whether there's the interest is another matter. Something else has happened, a couple of other things that have happened. When you would go to Bosnia, You took masking tape on the letters TV. It was rather easy to use thick tape. And the supposition was that if you put TV, it was a protection. It's unbelievable to think about that now, because now that would be just a target on your back. So journalists and indeed foreigners, but journalists are specifically targeted now, as opposed to a previous golden age when at least there was an idea that it was some sort of neutral interlocutor. So the security risk of traveling in these areas, in many conflict areas, is is just gone sky high. I also think that just uh, governments get more and more sophisticated and better at control. I think also the West, international press have also had a kind of, there have been a number of ethical crises as well as a kind of understanding in the legitimacy of local voices. So if I tried 30 years ago, 25 years ago, as I would have done to say, like, I've got a Bosnian journalist and I'd like you to publish their story, I would get a quizzical look. Now I think it would be, oh, great, let me see it. Positive side, I think there's there's an understanding of, of the validity of local voices in a way that there wasn't, and that they may be quite professionalized and quite capable in any way their viewpoint is valid and let's hear it, where before I think there was a structural refusal. So I think there's a lot of positives as well as the negatives and opportunities as well as the risks. So that gives out of PR some openings, some opportunities. I I think we feel still that the best thing we can do is strengthen the professionalism, the abilities, the experience of local voices for the long term and ride with them as long as we're able to. And that's our primary. And if you want to talk about, as I said, the projects I really love, the ones that I just so enjoy are Journalism 101. I've been to a training seminar in Cuba and it's amazing. And there's a new generation Cuba has not transitioned, but it's in a delicate moment and you can skip a generation. And I think people want to work in a normal way. And that's exceptionally exciting. And and we do a lot of these projects. I think you still have a need for reporting in areas of conflict and crisis, whether it's Syria and Iraq or whether it's uh, very challengingly. And I think increasingly for us, finding ways to support journalists and rights activists in areas under dictatorships. This is really very difficult. I I don't talk about all the places we work for for some obvious reasons. It's not hush-hush, it's just being careful. And it's very difficult. There are always people who want to work and try to function, but in some non-permissive environments, it is very, very difficult. And paradoxically, digital security becomes a really big question because just as the internet and connectivity allows us to reach and work with more people than ever before, more quickly than ever before, their digital footprints 
put them at risk of attack, seizure, arrest, and all the rest. So one has to work very carefully. And there are a number of areas around the world, uh, non-permissive or dictatorship environments, uh, where we work, even if you're working with a dozen people, even if you're working very slowly, not much happens on the project, but when we can communicate, when we can connect, when they come out, et cetera. So those are our significant projects. We think just two more. We think that working working at this intersection between civil society groups and media is really a kind of force multiplier on both sides. We think, as I said, in, in the societies that people will wear a lot of hats anyway. In the morning, they're a journalist. In the evening, they're an activist and vice versa. And even though in the West, we may like to say, well, we'd prefer you to choose one or the other. You should be a journalist or you should be an activist. In distressed societies, that's just a luxury they don't have. So working in that nexus is very helpful, I think, to empower the voices, get the issues out, drive change at a grassroots level and, and seed uh, the future. Really big issue for us, which is really emerging work, is more on the research area in terms of, I guess what you can say is the sort of emerging or extant global conflict. I can say we in the West are becoming aware that it's a global conflict. I'm afraid to say that Russia and especially China know it already and have been waging it more successfully than we have. But in a way, if I was to take it from the beginnings, you know, the front line used to be in a village in Bosnia. And now I think that the real front line facing us is globally. And I think that there is a serious disinformation campaign slash risk. I think the West has some I don't want to say enemies, but I want to say vicious competitors. And I think Russia and China are a serious risk. And I think China especially is interested in dismantling the international system as was. And I think that the, the use of disinformation is now global. And the, the use of, well, you want to call it disinformation or propaganda, as you will. Um, but the, the reaches are extreme. Everybody has talked quite a lot about Russia interference in elections. And the real extreme measures of, of deep fake and disinformation. This is not just influence. This is orchestrated efforts to destabilize. And I'm not entirely sure the West has fully grasped the scale of this and certainly not mobilized it. I don't think the populations in general are quite aware. So we're engaged in research projects around the scale of global disinformation. And we find it quite surprising, I suppose, that a small organization that started in Bosnia is, is looking into that. But I think in a way, it's it's also, maybe it's a natural progression. It's quite a journey that you've been on. And I think one of the things I'm picking up here is your ability, perhaps partly as an organization that started small, to pivot, to be quite flexible and to address the sort of the urgent and the rising issues of the day. You know, you mentioned earlier, deep fake, fake news. And I think you're right that sometimes we see that as somewhat more benign or mischievous somehow than in fact it really is and it it speaks to the things that you were saying about the increasing risks that journalists face the security risks that they face working in non-permissive environments and if you know the non-permissive environments are getting bigger and bigger and more and more powerful then journalism is itself hugely at risk so very interesting things that are being pulled out there also your comment about the shift that we've had in terms of where authority, where journalistic authority lies 
and the idea that local voices on the ground actually are perhaps gaining authority or a validity as having you know a kind of a local expertise a different kind of expertise not that sort of external outlook i think that leads me on to my next question you mentioned one of your projects with a civic activists group women in iraq and i wondered how much other work you've been doing specifically with either women's groups or with marginalized or less powerful community groups Sure. We do a fair amount of women's programming. Actually, it's a priority that we wish we could make, put even more emphasis on and give more drive to. Just structurally, we tend to be a little bit structured by our regions rather than by our themes. Especially if you work in the Middle East, women's issues are, and, and empowerment of women is itself a democracy issue. It's a critical rights issue. It's also a critical freedom of expression issue. So it's a natural area and a natural focus. I also have to say that I learned this many years ago in the Balkans, just noticed without any planning that so many of our partners in the Balkans were unbelievably strong and forthright women. And in fact, the heads of many of the human rights groups in the Balkans were women. And it had to seem to me that there was a reason and that the reason was not only they were strong and amazing women, but they were not therefore part of the previous structures because the previous structures were driven by men and were very paternalistic. So they were freed from all that. And so then when they started up, put them in a difficult situation, they were often Hillary, they were often criticized, they were often alone, put in very dangerous, but also courageous uh, positions. So I think that, again, the parallel is that the minority voices from the Balkans uh, throughout, whether it's a group within a society that is underrepresented or underheard, I think that's a commonality in all our work, whether it's a minority viewpoint because it's a democracy viewpoint or it's a minority unrepresented group or it's actually a majority underrepresented which is women but you also have other challenges these are shocking things that we were very excited to start we founded the first independent news agency in afghanistan which we then rolled off and is still producing it's called pajwak very proud of that project it's a very challenging and very difficult project. And the things you learn, we were really excited in the early days that there were another number of women promoted within the project as editors and as journalists. And it was incredibly moving for us. And then we learned that some of the women staff were being beaten at night by their fathers because it was just a cultural offense. And yet they would come in the next day. So you have to be very careful and culturally sensitive and cautious as you work and try to think, try to think as much as you can, even though it is your principles. Whenever you engage somewhere, you're messing around with another culture and you have to be very careful and cautious and, and led by their inspiration and their, their determination. These, these are critical programs and we are trying to put more emphasis as well. It's delicate, it's sensitive, but driving change always is. And I think, you know, the core of your mission, which is empowering people on the ground to drive change, to drive their own change, I suppose it doesn't protect people, but it means that everyone owns the change that they're trying to drive. It's not being imposed. Um, we've talked together about the very complex relationship between war and journalism, between peace and journalism. You've given me some really optimistic things to think about. The idea that good journalism on conflict actually can lead to conflict resolution. But you've also talked about some things that are very much more pessimistic. Some of the impacts of the digital change, the increasing fog of war almost because of disinformation, increasingly non-permissive environments and risks of security for journalists. So I was wondering, Tony, whether you feel optimistic or pessimistic about the future of war and peace reporting. 
Sure. Maybe it depends on the day. We haven't covered, of course, the, uh, the, the really challenging question about the digital revolution. And you did a map of what the vision of the internet was supposed to be. It was supposed to be one world all unified. And in fact, in many ways, it's divided, separated, and communities are becoming more and more intensely internally focused and not bridging. And that's not even countering, considering efforts by China and Russia to build their own internet you know, walls, as you will. And increasingly, for example, in Burma, when you have a coup, it's natural in the old days, the sign of the coup would be the seizure of the state broadcaster. Well, that happens, but also independent media are shut down, but also now the internet is actually shut down. And now you have to register in, in China, you have to register to have a SIM card. So in other words, drilling down into the technology of communications more and more and more. Um, I have to be optimistic because it would be, um, I don't think you do a job like mine if, 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 if you weren't, but, but also because when I'm, the optimism comes because whenever I travel to the field, and that's been a great blow for the last 12 months, I, I used to travel three three times a month, and I haven't traveled hardly three times in the last year, um, and, and certainly not to the field. And also, of course, we haven't touched on the, the inequality and COVID response and what that means, because it means a lot in our area. We are sitting here in London and, and Washington and getting vaccinated, and our, our colleagues are, are not. Uh, certainly not at the pace, and it really drives it home for us very acutely. But it's their courage, and it's their determination, and frankly, it's the fact that they are making us obsolete because they're as good or better than we ever were, and they have extreme talents and abilities, and that just has to make you optimistic. It just has to, that they want to tell their story, that they really know their stuff, they understand their societies and that we can have a small role in, in helping them get there. It has to inspire me every time I see them. It certainly inspires me. The legacy that some of your projects have left is profound and long lasting and absolutely gives me hope. Shall we touch on COVID and projects that your institute has been doing around COVID specifically? Well, I have to admit that COVID, when it struck, like many people, I really couldn't believe that we would get through this, you know, running a charity is a hazardous business and uh, financially for nothing else. We're always, you know, raising money and doing our best and thinking about projects. And it's the, that chaotic side. And I really was distressed about obviously COVID, but also what it might mean for us. But the team was heroic and like everybody transitioned to working from home, as I'm sure the university has and everybody has. And that was an enormous shift of humanity. But we also found ways to work online to keep functioning. So our training was 50% online anyway. So we just went completely online. We're working through social media. So we think we were able to just do more on social media. So I think the transition, you know, in one sense, the transition that was going to happen has happened more. And we found ways to pivot to, to address uh, the challenge of COVID. I think what we've seen in the areas where we worked is that COVID frankly made everything worse. So if you had a dictatorship, the dictatorship took advantage of COVID to put in more controls. If you had disequality and gender rights concerns, you know, you will have heard a lot about gender-based violence and in a lot of strain at domestic level and so on. Very challenging from a gender perspective. If you had inequality in healthcare, don't even start, and so on down the line. So the, the social stress points in a society that you will have seen, oh, freedom of expression above all. Well, we don't have to have a press conference because you can't come. So there's no news, no information, et cetera, et cetera. So I think you can find all the stress points in, in challenging societies has become in, in many senses worse. And so our first job was to 
transition what we can do and maintain. But in a lot of areas, we have this new factor of specific disinformation around COVID, which uh, I, that I think has to make one pessimistic. I mean, really, in, the, in a world where we live in that you could possibly want to make disinformation about a global pandemic, it, it really strains the mind to imagine that in the human soul. Um, but uh, obviously, there's a great role of uh, what the WHO called, you know, the pandemic of misinformation. And again, fact-based reporting, calm information, giving voice to societies. This is the work that you can do at a local level, communicating real information and also communicating what's actually happening in a realistic way. These are all the basic tools that journalism has. So real journalism has a vital role to play in a pandemic against this wash of really astounding social media rubbish and explicit disinformation. And I know for a fact, because I've seen it from my own eyes uh, back in the States where I'm native of, but there is Russian disinformation on COVID artfully produced and shared over Facebook and destabilizing America around the COVID issue for political reason. It's disheartening, it's depressing. And so there's certainly a direct role for us. And, and a number of our projects in, in a lot of our areas have focused on COVID reporting and factual COVID reporting and misinformation around that issue. So another role for journalism to play in a public interest manner. Yeah. And if we want to finish on a slightly more optimistic note, you know, I am aware and I have been hugely impressed by the work, for example, that your network of reporters in Cuba has been doing. So, as you say, hugely impacted by COVID, by the pandemic, but overcoming that and using it almost as an opportunity, a case study to shine a spotlight on the wider trend of repressive media environment and disinformation. It becomes a case study for this wider problem. Yeah. Look, I, this was a very long time ago, but I can maybe leave it with this. It was three and a half years after we were founded that the genocide in Srebrenica happened. So in the life cycle of IWPR, that's a long time ago. But at the time, I called a wonderful friend in New York who ran a, a foundation, a peace foundation, a wonderful woman. And I said to her, I'm so depressed because what's the point of what we're doing if we've been around for three and a half years? And then the genocide happens. We obviously accomplished nothing. And she said, look, you have to think globally and act locally. So you're aware of the trends of the big problems and the things that you're responding against, but your solutions are, are brick by brick, story by story, person by person, community by community. And you have to have faith in the long-term and the building of the skills and the knowledge at that level. And that's where you can succeed. And I've kept that ever since. That is a really good note to end on, Tony. You've taken us on a really fascinating journey from the start of the Institute for War and Peace reporting all the way through to the 21st century, this pandemic year that we've had. But reflecting on the very complex relationship between media and society, media and conflict, media and peace, really fascinating from the point of view of the Visualising War project in terms of our interest in this feedback loop between narrative and reality. I think you have really brought out what we can do with intervention when narrative is used as a positive intervention, as you say, locally, on the ground, brick by brick, step by step, story by story. And I think that's a fantastic thing to take away. Thank you, Tony, so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really fascinating to hear about your work.
And I want to mention to listeners that they can find out very much more about the Institute for War and Peace reporting by visiting the website. There is a lot of information there about projects. There are stories to read, lots to learn about the impact which this institute has had over its 30 years history. And importantly, there is a red donate button in the top right hand corner. So if you are inspired as I am by Tony's work and by the work of the Institute, then do press that button. Thank you listeners for joining us again. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I have with Anthony Borden. Next week, we're going to be looking at a connected topic. Our guest will be documentary maker Sam Taplin, and we're going to be asking him about habits of representing war in historical documentaries, and also what kinds of war, what aspects of war are particularly popular with commissioning editors and with audiences. So do join us next week for what we hope will be another fascinating discussion. If you would like to support the Visualising War project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the show. If you'd like to join our conversation further, you can also follow us on social media. Just search for Visualising War or get in touch directly by emailing us at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zofia Gertin. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>